I'm going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 16. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labour and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all people and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I'd like to introduce Steve Timmis. Uh, Steve is our speaker this afternoon. He's married to Janet. Uh, they have four married children, eight grandchildren at last count. Uh, he is the director of Acts 29 uh, in Western Europe. Uh, he's, he likes to share responsibility, so there's lots of co-founder, co-this, co-that. He's the co-founder of The Crowded House, an international group of church planning networks. He's the co-director of the Porterbrook Network, an initiative that trains church planners. He's the co-author of Total Church. Uh, he's authored a couple of books on his, in his own right, uh, Gospel-Centred Leadership, and I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said That. I hadn't read that book, but I can't imagine what it's about. Um, uh, Steve, it's a pleasure to have you with here at Multiply. Um, I'd like you to join us up the front uh, so I can pray for you, brother. Um, why don't you open your Bibles and get ready to hear Steve teach. Let me pray for you. Father God, we just praise you and thank you for this opportunity to hear from your word yet again. Uh, we ask that you would bless uh, your servant, Steve, as he teaches your word faithfully to us. Father, by your spirit, may we grow into the image of your son, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> good afternoon, everyone. Um, thanks for that introduction, though most of the details were wrong. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, I've been asked to, um, rather than just simply uh, expound a passage of scripture, but to uh, share uh, some personal uh, reflections. Um, and I suspect that's happened because, um, as is quite obvious to you, I'm no longer a spring chicken. Uh, it's, uh, it seems the equivalent of um, you know, these lifetime achievement awards they give to actors and, uh, and artists. Basically, when they're past their best, they get them. They say, you've done a really good job. Now, uh, totter off and uh, you know, do, pursue some kind of hobby. Um, I'm, I am acutely aware of the fact that I'm not as young as I used to be. Uh, I've been around the block a few times, and uh, so much so that uh, it takes me a little longer to get round on each uh, cycle. Uh, now, I'm 57 years old. 
uh, and I began in, as it were, supported formal gospel ministry uh, when I was at the tender age of 22. Um, I've been married for 35 years, and I've been involved in this kind of ministry for that length of time. Now, I tell you that not um, simply to give you some tedious information about me, um, but to say that on its own, that kind of statistic doesn't give any special weight to what I'm about to say. The fact that I'm old, the fact that I'm experienced, uh, these things are in and of themselves no guarantee of any significance at all. Because age in and of itself is no securer of wisdom. Experience is in and of itself no securer of wisdom. That only comes from reflecting on and learning from that experience. And, and that's precisely what um, I've sought to do in this session. Um, let me tell you why. First of all, because, well, I'm just wired that way. That's, that's how I learn. I'm a, I'm a reflective and an interactive learner. So it's good as you go through life just to reflect upon what's just happened. Be that good, be that bad, uh, be that a triumph, be that a tragedy. It's good to just take stock and reflect upon what happened and why it happened. Um, and the second reason is that I've made, my, I've made mistakes, too many to mention. Um, and I'm not saying that simply to, uh, in some kind of generalization uh, that, hey, we've all made mistakes, don't we? But I mean, I have genuinely made many, many mistakes. Um, so many that only a fool would fail to learn from them. And a fool, in the biblical sense of that term, has no place in gospel ministry, has no place in planting churches. So I'm wired that way. That's why I'm, I reflect upon them. Uh, I've made too many mistakes for me not to uh, reflect upon them and learn from them. But thirdly, the gospel requires it and the gospel facilitates it. See, we know, don't we, that the gospel isn't merely the truth uh, that we hear that gets us into the kingdom, but it's the truth by which we live as inhabitants or citizens of the kingdom. It's the lens through which we view life, through which we understand relationships, through which we weigh competing claims, through which we make decisions, through which we conduct our ministries, through which we plant churches, through which we lead people, through which we disciple people. So what is the fruit of that reflection? What has this gleaned wisdom revealed to me? Well, Mainly, it's the critical importance of humility, the critical importance of humility. Um, and I realize that that's an issue that uh, Gary addressed for us as he very helpfully took us through the early chapters of Deuteronomy. Um, and when I realized that there was the danger of overlap, I seriously thought as to whether I should reconsider. But actually, the more that I thought about it, the more compelled I was to pursue this, this issue, to carry on down this road. And because you can't hear, we can't hear, I can't hear the need for humility too often. I can't be told of the dangers of pride too often. You see, families in ministry can easily be sacrificed. And you hear sometimes people say families are sacrificed on the altar 
of ministry. They're not. Families are fed to the demon of pride. That's the problem that we have. We can't blame our ministries. We can't blame our churches. We can't blame the demands placed upon us. We can only blame the pride that is inherent in our hearts. The critical importance of humility. Augustine put it this way. Humility is the foundation of all the other virtues. Hence, in the soul in which this virtue does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue except in mere appearance. That's how important humility is. John Stott clearly agreed. Listen to this. This is a, a more extensive quote, but it, uh, it bears, it bears uh, just reading as it is. Pride is without doubt the chief occupational hazard of the preacher. It has ruined many and deprived their ministry of power. In some, it is blatantly obvious they are exhibitionists by temperament, and they use the pulpit as a stage on which they show off. Other preachers are not like Nebuchadnezzar, however, for their pride does not take the form of blatant boastfulness. It is more subtle, more insidious, and even more perverse. For it is possible to adopt an outward demeanor of great meekness, which while inside our appetite for applause is insatiable. At that very moment when in the pulpit we are extolling the glories of Christ, we can in reality be seeking our own glory. And when we are exhorting the congregation to praise God and are even ostensibly leading them in praise, we can be secretly hoping that they will spare a bit of praise for us. We need to cry out with Richard Baxter. Oh, what a constant companion, what a tyrannical commander, what a sly, subtle, and insinuating enemy is this sin of pride. You see, I speak to you as a proud man. As I was preparing this talk, I found myself wondering whether, whether this was going to end up as a go-to sermon on pride. Maybe out of this, I would have enough material to be able to write the definitive book on humility. Maybe that was just a possibility. But I do speak to you as a proud man. I loathe that pridefulness in a way that 25 years ago I didn't, and in which I was just more indifferent to it than I am now. But pride still stalks me, and pride still mugs me. And I don't realize it until I wake up and I come to my senses. It is a constant battle. And even this admission that I'm a proud man may yet prove to be another weapon in pride's arsenal. Such is its insidious nature. You see, what should pastors or planters or preachers be known for? Well, many things, of course, but, but they should be known for humility. Because that was true of Jesus, wasn't it? He was a truly humble man. And we should be known as men who are humble. But what almost always, no, what always afflicts us? Pride. Listen to this quote by uh, the, uh, the theologian Helmut Tillich, or as I believe it should be pronounced, T. Licky, but I can't bring myself to say that with a straight face. So I'm going to repronounce it my way, Tillich. 
Helmut Tillich. It is, is it, it is possible that theology makes a young theologian vain and so kindles in him something like Gnostic pride. The chief reason for this is that us men, truth and love are seldom combined. It is also possible to say precisely why. Truth seduces us very easily into a kind of joy of possession. This is very insightful. I have comprehended this, and that learned it, understood it. Knowledge is power. I am therefore more than the other man who does not know this and that. I have greater possibilities and also greater temptations. Anyone who deals with truth, as we theologians certainly do, succumbs all too easily to the psychology of the possessor. But love is the opposite of the will to possess. It is self-giving. It boasts not in itself, but it humbles itself. See, I don't think that's the whole answer, but it's certainly an important element. We were made to be lovers of God, weren't we? But in our sin, we have turned away from God and we have turned in on ourselves and we have become lovers of ourselves, self-lovers. And pride, according to, to Genesis 3, pride is the nuclear core of our fallenness. Other, other, all other sins feed off it. All other sins are expressions of it which means that anything and everything has the capacity to both feed my pride and express my pride. Which makes the task of uh, pastoring and planting and preaching particularly fraught. Because here's my 35-year experience take on it. For what it's worth. See, apparently nobody goes into marriage thinking of divorce. I'm not entirely sure about that, uh, but I'm willing to run with it because it's, it's just a, 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 very useful, um, a very useful parallel to what I want to say. Um, no one goes into supported ministry with an unbridled ambition to make a name for themselves. But just as the rigors of marriage prove too much for some people, and sadly, Far too many marriages fail, so the pitfalls of ministry just prove too much for some of us. And the tragedy is that there are some people here today just beginning a ministry with great hope and, yes, godly ambition, who in, if the Lord tarries just a decade or two, will be nowhere. If the statistics are true, that is almost certainly to be the case. Why? Because of this thing called pride. You see, I'm of the opinion that gospel ministry, and I'm using the term in its limited sense, because everybody's a gospel minister. To be a believer is to be a gospel minister. So I'm using this in its limited sense because this is a context that we're in. But gospel ministry is not the last option of the incompetent. It really isn't. It shouldn't be. Sadly, sometimes it is. It is the last option of the incompetent. I can't do anything else, so I'm going to go to theological college, or I'm going to do an internship or apprenticeship or whatever. I'm just not good at anything else, and this is the only thing I can end up doing. And there are churches that have been led by men who have chosen this last option because they are basically incompetent at anything else. And they ought not to be doing that kind of gospel ministry. 
In other words, if you can't get paid to pursue preaching, pastoring, and planting, whatever, whatever category you fit yourself into, then you should have enough ability and competence to get a job to pay yourself to do it. But competent people, people who can do that, well then, there's a danger in it, isn't it? Because competent people tend to be successful at what they do. That just kind of goes with the territory, which means that there are some of us here who are in situations where we will build apparently successful ministries. We will plant apparently successful churches. We will will do apparently successful things. And in our world, when you build successfully all other things being equal, people are going to want to know the secret of your success. And largely people want to do that, not because they can glorify God because you've been successful, but so that they can have a shortcut to success in their ministry. So that means that if you are successful as a pastor, as a planter, as a preacher, if you are successful, you're going to be asked to speak at conferences. You're going to find publishers who want to publish your books. You're going to be invited into, onto platforms and invited into private conversations. Other people will want your endorsement and seek your patronage. That will happen. And in our world, our connected world, there are dangers inherent in ministry now facing some of you just starting off that were not present to previous generations. But here's the bottom line that we would all do well to remember. Such things of these are damaging to the soul. They really are. And please remember this thing. Families are not sacrificed on the altar of ministry. They are fed to the demon of pride. Such things are damaging to the soul. And they're not damaging to the soul potentially. They are actually damaging to the soul. You see, I've spoken from platforms, I've planted churches, I've written books, I've been sought for endorsements, people have sought me out for patronage, I've been invited into private conversations, so I know these things and I know these things are damaging to my soul. I know that it's impossible to be involved in these things without some impact upon my godliness, without some temptation. That is insidious. Now that doesn't mean to say that it's inevitably terminal. But it does mean that it needs constant vigilance and remedial action. If you've been married two years, please do not write a book on marriage. All I've learned about marriage. And don't don't speak. If you've got children who are like six months old and 18 months old, don't accept invitations to speak on parenting because you just don't know enough about it and whatever you say about parenting then you are likely to regret it 10 years later whatever you say about marriage after the first two years of your marriage you are likely to regret it 10 years later and you should always then write a retraction and say look I, I got it wrong I know I said this but actually sorry it doesn't always work that way You see, and this ties directly to some of the things that Gary was saying, we should be far more concerned about younger men being successful in gospel ministry than about them failing. 
for the simple reason that pride is so insidious and pernicious. I'm not sure, are you familiar with that song as it reached uh, Australia, Uptown Funk? Yeah? I'm too hot. Call the police and, and a fireman, I'm too hot. Make a dragon retire, man, I'm too hot. Say my name, you know who I am, I'm too hot. Am I bad about the money? Break it down. <laughs> I have no idea what am I bad about the money means. Absolutely no idea at all. But I know what the other bit means. I know what it means there. And, and, and sadly, this is, the, this is the irony. That's how many of us get into the pulpit. I want to kiss myself. I'm so pretty. That we, we, we stand there. We posture there because we're, we're too hot. We want to perform. We want to posture. We want to parade. And when we're good at what we do, when people appreciate what we do, when people pursue us because of what we do, we believe the press. And our soul gets eaten away. And our ministry becomes simply a context by which I continue to have this monster of pride fed. And my family suffers. My children suffer. My home life suffers. My friendships suffer. So let's spend just a little bit of time reflecting on Paul's words to his young protege, 1 Timothy chapter 4. As I said, I was, I was not kind of, in fact, it was said to me, we're not, we don't want you to spend a lot of time kind of exegeting a passage. That's Gary's privilege to open up the Bible. I'm not going to do anything in terms of close exegesis, but to, to try and, and capture the overall gist and sense of what he's saying and why. So let's just dip into it. Look at uh, what he says there um, in uh, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, a good minister of Christ. I think that's a beautiful description of a preacher, of a pastor, of a church planter. That's what we should aspire to be, a good minister, a good servant of Christ. Someone who is able and willing to teach truth and refute error because he himself is being nourished on or trained in, nourished on and trained in the truths of the faith and of good teaching, as, as, as Paul says to Timothy there in verse 6. You see, there is, isn't there, a vital pressing reality of the Word of God continuing to do its work in him. It, 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 the, the, this is in stark contrast to those godless myths and uh, the, the old wives' tale that were being peddled in and around Ephesus. And there is a, a helpful and a clarifying objectivity to the gospel that Paul alludes to here. Here, there is a refreshing and a reassuring power in the gospel, isn't it? It's not merely a word that we read and merely a word that we ponder at all. It's like we might do a textbook. It's a word that works. It's a word that acts upon us and through which the Spirit does his work in us. And that's what Paul says, what he says to Timothy. You will be a good servant of Jesus Christ being trained. Not having been trained, but being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. 
You are being trained in it. As you, as you read it, as it works its power upon you, as the Spirit takes it and massages it into your soul. Is that me that's making that noise? Is there anything I can not do? No? Okay. Um, see, as preachers, as pastors, as church planters... As, as husbands and as fathers and as wives and as, as, as children, we need to immerse ourselves in the Word of God, the Bible, and we need to feed on it daily. And we need to actively train ourselves in it and by it. We do. And look at Paul's next exhortation that he says to Timothy. Have nothing to do with irreverent myths, rather rather train yourself for godliness. Train yourself to be godly. I find that fascinating. I find that, that remarkable, isn't it? Train yourself to be godly. Exercise yourself into godliness. Listen to to this explanation from one commentator. A vigorous development and application of all his strength and ability that he might serve the glory of God with every thought and action. Such exercise is not restricted to a negative physical asceticism, but rather implies a positive developing of his strength nourished above all by the words of faith. Train yourself to be godly. You see, it isn't simply that the word of God works itself upon us. No, it is powerful, yes, but it's not magical. So, so we invest in it. That's what we do as ministers of the gospel. We spill some blood, sweat, and tears in the pursuit of the truth of God's word. And it's in this way. According to Paul to Timothy, that we continually set an example in speech and in conduct and in love and in faith and in purity. See, there, there has to be, there really does have to be. This is, this is a stark imperative that we're confronted with. And, and I want to say it with all the, all the force and, and passion and, 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 whim, and, and, and winsomeness that I possibly can. There has to be a winsome congruity about all aspects of a life of a pastor, a planter, and a, and a preacher. This, this congruity, that it, this integrity, this, this interconnection between who I am in public and who I am in private. That, that we, should be, we, we should be as preachers and pastors and planters, we should be men who, who are exactly what we are outside as we are in the family. Because we're not sacrificing our family to the great God of pride. But these are men and and women, young men, young women that we are investing in. That we're loving, that we're serving, that we're pursuing. That we're, we're laying our life on the line for them. Because that's exactly what we're doing for the people outside. And we're not doing it in order to make a name for ourselves. Because we're not building a platform for ourselves. No, we are, we are being men of God. We are training ourselves in godliness. We are pursuing godliness and investing everything to be godly, intentionally, self-consciously godly. Godliness isn't just something that happens to you. It is our lives ought to be intentionally exemplary. Intentionally exemplary. That's hard for us, isn't it? Because a false humility kicks in there. But the Apostle Paul would say it often. He would present other gospel ministers in the same way as examples of the faith. Follow my example as I follow that of Christ. 
You've seen my manner of life. Well, imitate it. Do it. And again, this isn't haphazard, is it? This isn't whimsical or coincidental. There is an altruistic dimension to our pursuit of godliness. That's what Paul goes on to say. We do it self-consciously so that others might be provoked to godliness too. So it's show and tell always in terms of, of, of our pursuit of humility, our pursuit of godliness. It's a tell and show. It is a do as I do. And how does this relate to humility? Well, for the simple reason, ministry is not about us any more than it was for Timothy. And that's why families get sacrificed to this demon of pride, because we make ministry about us. Why, why do I invest all of my time outside of the home? Because I'm pursuing not the glory of Christ, but I'm pursuing the glory of me. I'm not wanting to, to build a platform so that Christ might be, might be paraded before the world. I'm building a platform so the world might see just how hot I am. That's why Paul, as he goes on to say, shows that Timothy's authority are the Scriptures. And, and his, his task is... It, it, His task is, because of his gift, is simply that he might read them and teach from them to the gathered church. That's what he's got to be doing. The same scriptures that he's been immersed in, that have notified him about godliness, that have impacted him for godliness, those are the scriptures that he's teaching. And that's why Paul then rounds it off with a whole series of imperatives, doesn't it? He says, practice these things. He says, be this. He says, watch. He says, persist. So don't neglect the gift you have, verse 14, which was given you by prophecy. No, practice these things. Immerse yourselves in them or be them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. This is what we should pursue. We don't pursue success. We don't pursue a platform. We don't pursue a church even. We pursue godliness. That's got to be our primary concern. Now, as a godly man, a godly preacher, pastor, planter, then you're going to do wise things. You're going to build wisely. That's what we're called to do. But we're not building for us. We're building for Christ and his glory. And when we build for Christ and his glory, our family is not going to be fed to any demon. Our family are going to be nurtured. They're going to be integrated. They're going to be loved and served. So in the areas of his life, his teaching, and his ministry, we are to be constantly and consistently engaged, diligent, and invested. This is a good servant of Jesus Christ. This is a good, this is a good minister of the gospel. What a, a wonderful description to be a good servant. What a, a noble ambition. To be a servant. A servant of who? Christ Jesus. There is no better description. There is no better designation. But a servant of Christ Jesus. And this is a means to humility. 
Humility isn't an object that we pursue, is it? It's a fruit that grows out as God's word is cultivated in our hearts, as the gospel takes root and begins to flourish. So so don't focus on humility, focus on Christ, focus on the gospel. And when you're focusing upon Christ and and, and the gospel, and your affections are captured by him, your heart is enlarged for him, when he becomes to you the altogether lovely one and the fairest of 10,000, then then your, your, your family won't be sacrificed. Your church won't be a means to the end, and that end being your honor, your reputation. Focus upon him with passion, with with determination, with dedication and resolve. You can see how it works, can't you? C.S. Lewis nailed it, didn't he, when he said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. As Keller said, it's that grace of self-forgetfulness. Pride is like a black hole. It takes anything in its own and it devours it. It feeds off it. It is enlarged through it. So even focusing on being humble cultivates pride. So focus on Christ. See, that's one reason why I'm not a big fan of journals. I don't know if any of you do. I don't want to offend you, and I'm sure, I'm sure there's all good reasons for doing them, but I'm just not a fan. I, I don't want to spend a lot of time searching my soul and inquiring after its health. Look at what Paul does in Philippians chapter 4. To encourage joy and contentment and thankfulness among God's people, he encourages the people of God, to focus on what is true and what is honorable and what is pure. And and, and what he's doing there is he's saying, don't focus on those things that cause you anxiety. Rather focus upon those things that are exemplified in the gospel. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you may be suffering, uh, struggling with a particular temptation. And, and in that temptation, I think that one of the, 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 the most effective devices of the evil one is to get us to become preoccupied with the temptation so that we pray about the temptation. Lord, take this temptation, whatever it is, away from me. And we, we think about the temptation and we find the temptation is still there. So we pray about it more. And surprise, surprise, the temptation is still there because we pray and we're thinking about it. No, no, don't do that. Rather, Look at those things that are true and lovely and pure. Those things that are exemplified in the gospel. Those things that are magnified in Christ. Set your affections upon him and that temptation will, will flee. That temptation will diminish. Its power will, will, will no longer allure you. So let's land the plane with the last um, eight minutes. Remember Christ as our Savior and example. See, the title of this conference is Whatever It Takes. Well, what does it take? Well, it takes the death of self. It's laying it all on the line. It's having this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking upon himself the form of a servant. 
I've been asked to um, speak about some of the things uh, that we've uh, been through in Acts 29 uh, over the, the last year or so, in particular reference to Mark Driscoll uh, and the, um, the, the, the sad things that happened in Mars Hill uh, and in Mark's ministry in particular. Uh, and I don't claim to have all the answers, and I'm certainly not going to uh, give you any inside information or dish any dirt at all. I can just, what I can say is that as you look and see, one of the questions that I would often ask myself um, over many years is wonder why the Lord gave a man as young as Mark Triscoll the platform that he gave him. Because it never, it just, and, and I still don't know the answer to that. Because it just strikes me that it, how can that do anything other than feed that pride that is latent or active in his soul as it is in all of our souls? To, 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 know, that you have, to, to know that you have so many million hits on your sermons. How are you not going to end up preaching to the internet rather than to your congregation? To, to know that people, people who are old enough to be your father, want to get an audience with you. How is that not going to feed this monster, this pride? And then you build a ministry that, where it's not about the ministry, but it's about you. It's not about Christ, but it's about you. It's not about the people of God, it's about you. And how did it happen? Well, I think it's this thing called pride. That's why... That's why I can't point the finger at Mark Driscoll, and I can't call him out as a, as a worse sinner than I am, because I know that exactly what is in his heart is in mine, and I know that there but for the grace of God go I. And, and I know that the major difference between he and me, and why I haven't ended up where Mark currently is, is because I didn't have the opportunity that Mark had. So what can we do? What can we do for Mark now? Well, what should his friends be doing who have contact with him? They should be encouraging to think of Christ as both Savior and example. That's what Peter does, isn't it? He, he sets Christ as the example of the believer as well as the Savior of the people. And both are so very important. And, and, and also what it means is refuse elevation and pursue participation. Refuse elevation and, and, and pursue participation as a preacher, as a pastor, as a, as a planter, as, as, as a family. Don't separate your life and your heart and your family from the, the, the church of which you are part. Because that was a thing that was uh, quite common in, uh, in, in the situation that we're alluding to. That is a thing that, that you would hear quite a lot in, uh, in, in, within Acts 29 over many years. No, we need to see ourselves as a sheep before we view ourselves as a shepherd. So integrate your life and your family into the church. Be a member before you're a pastor. Be, be a part of a small group and not simply gather a group of people around you that you want, that you claim to be accountable to. Being accessible to people means far more than making room in your diary for them. It means making room in your life for them. So that they see what kind of husband you are, what kind of father you are, what kind of neighbor you are, that they see that up close and personal. 
It's very hard to, to posture and make grand statements and, and bold gestures when people are embedded in your life. Ordinary people are embedded in your life and see you when you get out the wrong side of the bed. I don't know Gary well, but I can guarantee you that he know, gets nowhere near as cranky as I do. But I can hide that crankiness most of the time. I'm very good at concealing that, 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 that sense of arrogance that I have that I know better than anybody else. I say that I'm an introvert, and, in, and I'm an introvert because actually I think I make more sense than anybody else. So the person I want to spend time with is me, not you. <laughs> but when... I'm living my life among God's people. When my family is exposed to God's people, an integral part of it, then I'm going to have people, ordinary people, young people speaking truth to me, gospeling me, calling me out, calling me back to Christ, bringing the good news to bear. Nothing is more effective in dealing with that, anima, that, that, that beast of pride and, and, and nurturing humility than the awareness that the people you're preaching to know what kind of man you really are and they love you and they want to listen to you. It's this, this glorious congruity between who we are in the home and who we are outside. So refuse elevation, pursue participation. Reject separation and cultivate engagement. Reject separation and cultivate engagement. Don't worry in your ministry about who gets most hits on iTunes in terms of sermon. Love your people so that they know that you love them. You may not be a Spurgeon in your preaching, but they don't need a Spurgeon. In the providence of God, they need you. So be the man of God that they need you to be. A man of love and grace and mercy and humility. And pursue those things. And you will get conference invitations. You will be asked to sit on committees. You will be asked to write books. But most of the time, say no. It doesn't mean to say that those things are inherently wrong. No, but they are inherently dangerous. Yes. So give your ministry time to develop. Give your family time to grow. Don't, 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 don't sacrifice it, not on your ministry, but again to this demon of pride. Don't do it by running off all over the country or all over the world so that you can give people your wisdom when there are people at home who are just hungry for your affection. And one final thing, forget width, just dig deep. Forget width, dig deep. Leave God to take care of how wide your ministry grows. For some, it will grow very wide. And that's fine. But if you dig deep now, dig deep into God's Word, dig deep into your own heart, know yourself, dig deep into the gospel, dig deep into the lives of your people, dig deep into your family. If you're a husband, dig deep into your wife. If you're you're a father, dig deep into your children. Dig deep and invest heavily there. So that you might be the man that God wants you to be. Whatever it takes. Well, it takes everything. It takes the sacrifice of our lives to Christ. That's what it takes. So let's give it. 
but not so that we might be famous, but so that Christ might be glorious. And not so that we might be successful, but for those that are in our care, they might flourish and thrive and become all that God wants them to be. And that's your church, yes, but that's your family, most definitely. They're not two separate entities embed, integrate, build for the glory of God and the fame of Christ. Amen.